Hey, Recombobulator Lab listeners, this is Chris. I just wanted to let you know about something special that's coming up. We're going to have our first interview. Our first interview is going to be with Major League Baseball umpire Dale Scott. Now, you might be asking yourself, what the heck is a baseball umpire going to be doing on the Recombobulator Lab? Well, nobody understands the dynamic of being around people who believe what they want to be true, regardless of the evidence, more than a Major League Baseball umpire. Dale was a Major League umpire for almost 4,000 games, and he's going to talk about recognizing when someone's heart, not their head's running the show, and how to handle conflict when someone's convinced they're right, and the problem with being convinced that you're right. I just wanted to make sure that you heard it first from me. The episode's going to drop Christmas Eve. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Graham Nye and Chris Dominic. Christopher J. Dominic. Ah, uh, uh, yes. As they say in the classics, I love your work. You know what? I love your work. I love it's your just, work. It's just a love fest today. <laughs> From 10,000 your... 10, miles away, I'm a whole day ahead of you. It's Sunday morning here. Um, yeah. You know, it's nine o'clock in the morning, just come back from church, not really, my church being a bit of a swim, and now I feel blessed by the gods yeah. of salt water. <laughs> yeah, the Aussie church. Yeah, so the, yeah it's uh, 2 p.m. on the 5th of December. Nice. Just, uh, by the way, thanks a lot for continuing to love us. It's really fun to see the great feedback you guys have shared with us, and people have been sharing the podcast, and we've been getting people who just recently came on and are starting from the beginning and listening to episode one. It's unreal. Episode Can I give a shout-out? I'm really out? happy about that. Go. Can I give a shout-out to one guy? Yeah, do it. Shout out to that one dude in India who was. Oh, I know. And how good is that? And if that one dude in India could tell 10 of his friends, and those 10 friends tell 10 friends, and those Mm -hmm. 10 friends tell 10 friends. We're going to basically be an Indian podcast. Yeah, it's really fun yeah. when you look on the back end of one of these and you you see the geographic map and then you think, whoa, uh, who knew? So, hey. All right, I was thinking we start with, ready? The segment is good news. Boom! Yes. And the reason why, of course, is because Dr. Anthony Fauci, who many of you know is the famous immunologist who's been working with presidents ever since Reagan, Mm. just said that he expects we will get to the point by April where basically 21-year-olds can walk into a pharmacy and get a uh, a vaccine. Like it's By that point, it should be widespread and will be for the most part. And he has traditionally been pretty conservative about what he says. He doesn't want to get people's hopes up, if you will. And uh, I also read today that in Oregon, we'll have 140,000 syringes or treatments of one of the vaccines here uh, by in December. So the at least the healthcare workers and the folks in elder care facilities are going to get a good start. And that's just that's just exciting because there's been a lot of really bad news, as everybody knows. How about Australia? What's going on down there? Well, we've had we've had a good week. And, and I want to reiterate this. This is this pandemic is is a cruel mistress because you know it's it strikes countries sort of differently now yes there's a relationship to how governments respect science and how different populations respond to authority you know and i think australia and new zealand <laughs> sure. well i mean it's hard and i think having lived in the states for 10 years i really understand how the us is where it is i've got family in the uk and i've seen europe 
But having a Japanese background, for example, you know, Japan, biggest monoculture in the world, 130 million people, all of the same culture. They've got no immigration, incredibly sort of subservient, listen to authority. Their culture, they don't handshake, they bow, mm-hmm. which is a huge mm-hmm. thing. And they've been wearing masks since the beginning of time in memoriam. So these Asian countries can kind of do quite well. Having said that, actually, Tokyo is in the middle of a bit of a a hotspot. But for Australia and New Zealand, we're 10,000 miles from the rest of the world. And that distance, the ability to shut down the border has been huge. And then we listen to science. So I get a bit self-conscious about talking about how Australia is going fairly well in this just horrendous global thing. You look at the death rate. So I preface this by saying we are conscious and aware and empathetic to all these other countries who are just having a really hard time, a really tragic time. For us, though, we had the last of our restrictions lifted. I think officially now you can have a beer at a wedding, naked, doused in pig fat. I think that's the rule. I can't quite keep up. <laughs> can we say that on air? Okay, wait a minute. Last time we got together, you said that the big challenge, Sorry. was that you guys aren't accustomed to drinking sitting and you were being forced to. Has that, has that been lifted? As, and you know you've got a problem when my so my oldest son just finished his final exams at school and they did their version of you guys going to Mexico. They went up to a place called Byron Bay, which is Hippieville, but really rich Hippieville, and all the mm. Hemsworths up there, the Hemsworths go up there to breed. I, I think America <laughs> only knows there's a Liam Hemsworth and a Chris Hemsworth, but there's actually thousands of the bastards. Oh. And then right now, Zac Efron has blown into Byron Bay, so there's a bit of star spotting going on up there. But there are wow. thousands. 18-year-olds just finished their exams, waiting for their SAT results up there. I get a text from him two days ago going, oh, my God, we can stand up and drink. Woo-hoo! That's so, amazing. Yeah, That's we, amazing. We are yeah. in very different places. Oh, we are in very different places. I, know, I mean, California is locking down and all that. But, yeah. hey, it's the good news segment. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm so, going to take us back, Jason, back in history to diseases that were fought well with vaccines or eradicated altogether from the United States. And I got this from the CDC. So, so of course, I'm going to put you to the test again, all right? <laughs> you Why get I, test? I, I know, I love, I love hitting you with the test. It's great. So I've got four of these. Ready? Which disease causes a thick covering in the back of the nose or throat that makes it hard to breathe or swallow that led to heart failure, paralysis, and even death the vaccine was developed in 1921. TB. It's a good guess. It's Damn. diphtheria. Is that a what? Isn't that a dessert? Diphtheria. <laughs> Here we are making light of I'm diphtheria. So sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Okay. Here it's we like go. Number chlamydia. two. Chlamydia isn't that, a dessert. Is, it is definitely not yeah. the same thing. <laughs> Is chlamydia. Chlamydia should okay. be a type of flower. Anyway, keep going. I'm trying to switch the subject quickly. <laughs> Number two, which disease can do some serious damage to a child's immune systems and cause brain damage, hearing loss, or even death? It mostly affects kids under five years old. And before the vaccine, over 20,000 kids were infected each year. That's about 400 school buses worth of kids. And of those kids, one in five suffered brain damage or became deaf. Even with treatment, as many as one out of 20 kids would develop meningitis and die. The vaccine was developed in 1987. Oh, meningococcal? No. Oh, no. I have no idea. It's a good good guess. It's It's HIB. 
HIB. By the way, mm-hmm. I have no idea what HIB is, but I'm guessing it is related to m- m- meningitis somehow. I, I'm terrible at quizzes. I'm awful. Uh, I, that's the reason why I continue to quiz. Yeah. <laughs> You're so mean. Uh, number three. Did you know that worldwide, more than 780,000 people per year die from this disease? The vaccine was developed in 1986. It's, so, it's in our lifetime, these vaccines. In Isn't that wild? Oh, I know. I graduated years. from high school in 86. Yeah, you were making a whole series of errors on your personal life I was, exactly are you behind that's, your school? that's error time there's error a lot time. of errors it's so true yeah. um, I gotta have, make mistakes to get better you know so true um i have no idea i'm really embarrassed <laughs> okay hepatitis b oh wow hepatitis everybody loves a little hepatitis b all right last one number four this is a crippling and potentially deadly infectious disease involving a virus spreading from person to person and can invade an infected person's brain and spinal cord causing paralysis i think you're going to get this the vaccine was developed in 1955 okay polio no yep so I I one out of four my medical parents would be so disappointed oh that's right your dad was a doctor <laughs> and my mom there's two of them oh. two of them oh i forgot your mom's a doctor. i hope they're okay. not listening. Wow, that's yeah you're gonna have to report back in shape <laughs> bad Oh, man. All right. Well, here's what I wanted to do next. We originally came into this thinking we'd be talking about leadership, management, organizational business. Uh, And because of politics and COVID and these just other huge things going on, we just haven't gotten around to it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little interview of each other and we're going to ask each other what are some of the dumbest and smartest things we've seen, kind of at arm's length at first. And then we're going to ask each other about what are some of the dumbest and smartest things we've been close to, that we've been more directly involved in. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to start with you. Okay. You ready? Yeah. What are some of the dumbest things you've seen basically in your career of work generally? Well, okay. Yeah. More generally, what I'm fascinated about is the fact that companies do not see the disruption coming and do not have the capability to disrupt themselves. So Kodak, you know, Kodak invents digital photography in 1975. They have a board meeting. They say, hey, kids, isn't this great? And the board obviously says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we go digital, we're going to lose all this, all this business on the chemicals and the paper to print photography and how would that even work? And here we are. 40 years later, they're out of business. Um, You know, I think the other great example is Blockbuster Video, right? Blockbuster Video, they've got a bunch (laughs) of stores. And, you know, they have a board meeting and someone says, hey, there's a thing called Netflix. And they're actually mailing CDs uh, to uh, DVDs to, to, to the home. And I think they might start streaming at some point. And Blockbuster's board said, you know what, fellas, we make 30% of our revenue on late fees. That's never going to work with streaming. So let's just park that as an idea. <laughs> oh my God, Isn't my that God. crazy? So, yeah. So, the, yeah. yeah. The only example of, of a company disrupting itself is Apple. So Apple... In, 19, in 2003, 70% of their revenue was iPods. They launched the iPhone that d- destroyed the iPod as a revenue driver, obviously. And, but they had the courage mm. to do it. And that was high risk. Phones weren't easy, but they killed it. They That's cannibalized what. their own product. Yeah. Basically. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and businesses never want to do that. They all, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating. That's a really good point. I guess that's one way you can stay really, really intensely ahead. So that's mine. How about you? Dumbest thing well, you're saying. So yeah, I've got two that are a little more close to home. They're back when I was, and maybe I should set this up because I've got several stories that kind of come from this. Back when I first got recruited to do some management consulting work early on, I, I came into this company that 
had just fired their CEO and they were, they hired a new CEO and they were starting to completely go in and just clean out the disaster, right? I mean, they had problems, they had, they had safety issues, they had environmental problems, they had quality problems. They were really a mess. It was a great opportunity for a young person to go in and work really hard and have creative solutions to complex problems because everybody was all ears. There wasn't any of this hierarchy. We went in and a couple of things that we saw early on that were just fascinating. This group that I was a part of that was so much fun was a team that had basically an HR person, like a, like a, a, a personnel mm-hmm. specialist, a professional engineer who was really smart about all the technology, and me, who was focused on being a communication consultant, leadership consultant, management consultant. Anyway, we went into this place to try and figure out why every time I had a shift change, mm. that it was a total disaster. It was a manufacturing mm. facility. These guys were producing 24-7. But when the first 12-hour shift head over to the, the second 12-hour shift, there is all sorts of problems. The, the line mm. stopped. There was disasters everywhere. And we had to go in and figure it out. It was a mystery. Why? And one of the things we found was that after we talked to enough people and got their trust, that there was simply spite between the shifts. One shift was not setting up the others. They weren't basically like cleaning the kitchen before, you know, the next kitchen came in. They weren't like one guy (laughs) was so mad that somebody had stolen his special pen that he had rigged the line to basically fall apart when they started it up. My gosh. So every because of spite and basically bad attitudes and a crappy culture, we were losing a million bucks every so often. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It was somebody's pen. Yeah, I mean it was that so it was things like that that we saw that I I remember thinking, oh, this is fun turnaround stuff because it's low hanging fruit in a lot of ways, if Mm. you can just figure it out. So true. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what about smart? What are what are about some well, of the things that you've seen that are, are been really smart? If, uh, just leading on from that, the paper today and this this Sunday papers here are you know a big hefty papers probably like the New York Times and what have you. And today there's a big article on transitions from one White House administration to another. And speaking of two shifts, you know one shift kind of sabotaging the other. I didn't realize when uh, Clinton handed over to Bush. In 2000, you know, they took all the W keys off the keyboards of all the computers in the White House. They <laughs> they stole all the pens. I mean, it was like frat house stuff. Oh, it was sort of childish. And they often reflect on the fact that there was quite a delay to get the, the W's back on the keyboard. And, it, and there was an impact, they reckon, on how Bush responded to 9-11 potentially because it was such a delayed transition. And then how he transitioned to Obama was just a masterclass in diplomacy. You know, there's this beautiful letter and there was this fantastic thing. Yeah. So, anyway, back to the, the culture thing, the transition from one shift to another reminded me of that story. Some of the smarter stuff also related to what you said, you know that notion that culture eats strategy for breakfast, mm-hmm. which uh, Peter Drucker mm-hmm. would say? And I think culture solves the issue you just raised and culture in its finest form can deliver on the most difficult strategy. But strategy in and of itself is sort of unremarkable unless you've got a culture that's robust enough to deliver. And what that means is there's, you know, there's so many elephants in the room in business and the ability to create high level trust. To, to have everyone's mindset that we're all rowing in the one direction, that I've got a strong opinion loosely held. So I've got mm-hmm. an opinion but and you have an opinion and let's let's have an interaction and figure it out. Or the ability in the moment, these, these tight feedback loops, right? So it's not an annual mm-hmm. review and you, Chris, are nervously 
waiting for December to have this annual review, which is just a bit of rubbishy theatre, to create that really strong culture of like feedback in the moment. Hey, Chris, I just want to observe what's happening for us right now. You seem really defensive. I'm getting angry. Let's resolve it. That quality of interaction is fairly rare. So what I've seen incredibly mm-hmm. around the place is culture, you know, culture's living and breathing and businesses are just a group of people running towards the same goal. So it's all about the people and we often forget about it. And I think in the old days, it was like, oh, culture's the soft skills, which is so demeaning. It's actually the hardest oh, yeah. thing in the world to have a fierce conversation with someone, right? And yeah. do it productively. That's very oh, rare, sure. unique, you know? So that's the smartest things I've seen is around the culture piece. I think that's right. Also, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of like not on the stat sheet, if you mm. will, right? It's, it's somebody's ability to navigate those waters in terms of their talent and skill is one of those things that people seem to know about from working with them, but there isn't an objective marker for it, you know? As, I mean, my own example of this, uh, by the way, there's a word for this in the communication world. It's called dialogue. So when you, when you have this kind of conversation with somebody and your entire focus is not on winning, but it's on understanding. It really changes the language that you use, right? Because you're you're not actually trying to, in that moment, win some debate or prove that you're right. You really are just trying to get where are they coming from on this. And the the problem with that, of course, is a lot of people don't have the, the ability to do that. They don't. They haven't been trained on how to do it, or they don't have. It's not in their nature to do it. So unless they've been trained in how to do it, they won't be very good at it. And second of all, they don't. They're not necessarily bought in because their their gut is telling them, "I want to win this argument." They have a hard time basically holding back. So that's another reason why we've seen people just stink at this. My own smart example that's in this this area was we had, it's easy to get distracted by interpersonal stuff, but make sure you're looking at the processes mm. within the business as well as the system. Like what is the system? And again, this is back to culture. Does what, what gets really rewarded around here and what doesn't? Because you can talk safety in the manufacturing world all you want, but if somebody cheers when you leap up on top of the product while the big smashy thing is coming down in front of you to lift the the, the rag that fell on the line so you can keep the line running and keep everybody employed that day and everybody cheers, well, that's not really a very good safety culture, is it? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, but but that's what that's what happens sometimes. And mm. so it it's only when you start to realize, oh, that person in the if that person in the future gets fired for that or heavily disciplined for that, well, that's a different culture than somebody that that just has the the lip service, right? I mean, there's if is there teeth to it? So here's an example. I, we were working with this guy. We got to a to what would be considered the root cause of the problem. This guy was a plant manager. He just had to figure out how to get three things done over the course of a year, and he could fix all his problems. But he said to us, I've got 20 things on my performance plan, guys. Yeah. You know, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't we just call your boss and talk to them? Unreal. Amazing, right? Yeah. We this this actually happened. We dialed up the vice president of manufacturing, picked up the phone. We said, "Hey, we figured it out. It's three things. Can you shift his plan for the year over to these three things?" And she said, "Sure." Ta-da. Yeah. The return on investment on that team was five hundred something plus percent. It was really fun. That's so cool to hear that. It is so interesting, you know. Culture signals everything, you know, in an organization, people pick up on it. What behavior gets ignored or what behavior get not ignored or acted on? It's sort of like that, the broken window school thing. If you Exactly. If they just 
left broken, people pick up on that. And then that's the standard drops and then drops again. Right. again. Yeah, you have to show that you're attending to it, right? That, that you're putting energy into it. It's, it's, it's fascinating how I think one of the earlier lessons of managers is always just this whole idea that you have to just remember entropy is always there. You know, you put your time and energy into something and you tell yourself that's fixed forever. You spend six months on something else. You go back to it and it's a shambles. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's because, because of it. I mean, that's just how it is, right? You just have to get used to the fact that if you're not putting time and energy into it, it's going to start to erode a little bit. If you get a really strong culture, it'll have a little bit of its own self fuel, but it doesn't always. I mean, it's entropy's a thing, you know. It's just yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's it's physics. But hey, I'd love to give you an excuse to be a little more personal about this. Are there any like really dumb things you've done? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is a seven hour podcast, right? Are we ready? <laughs> I know we're, we're gonna have to. I know we're gonna have this. We might be running over a little bit. I, uh, I think you should prepare a really nice gin and tonic. And I'm just uh-huh. going to speak for the next okay. 27 hours. Um, okay. Hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm working on that right now. <laughs> Chris is dating. <sighs> okay. Ready? Great. Yep. Let's go. Um, let's go. I want to hear it. So many mistakes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, okay. Can I tell you one? Yeah. I want to hear okay. it. So we moved to America and we're raising capital and uh, we've got this amazing investor we've engaged with and we're down to the final discussion points and he's going to invest money into the business. Mm-hmm. And it's a Sunday and um, it might be at the, it's at some Swiss club in Portland. It was really cool. And we're doing a use of proceeds exercise and at the end of it's like, okay, we're going to, let's make this investment happen. And we said, look, we've got a really big bill pay due to our manufacturer. Now it's due tomorrow. If we pay it, we're really on fumes. So how we're, this investment's happening, right? And he's like, yeah, 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 no problem. And we said, okay. And he said, look, pay that bill. We're going to meet on Thursday at my lawyer's office. Uh, we are going to sign documents and then there'll be funding. And then you'll be sweet. So pay the bill tomorrow. See you Thursday. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Next day we pay the bill. We're now on fumes. Thursday comes. We get up. We're excited. We put on fancy clothes because we're going to a lawyer's office. We pack pens because we're going to sign heaps of documents. We're in the car. The phone rings. It's the lawyer. The deal isn't happening and we can't tell you why. Oh. And we're like, we're like eight months into our move to America. Oh. Uh, we, are, we have a two-year-old and we're like 15 months pregnant. I'm not sure that's physically possible, but it felt like oh that. Oh, my God. Anyway, a day or two later, we got a call saying, yeah, the investor passed away and... Uh, we couldn't tell you at the time because we had to inform the family of that fellow. And so we had to deal with the personal tragedy. Like we'd spent six months getting to know this amazing guy. I mean, truth is oh. truly stranger than fiction. Isn't that it? is just dramatic as all hell. So the, the lesson is don't count your chickens before they hatch. But the good right. news story out of that, in, and this might sound woo-woo, well, no, it's not woo-woo, is our original angel investor in Australia. We emailed him because it's the middle of the night, right, the time difference, mm-hmm. and he said, okay, we think the business might be done and we're heading home with this is a situation. And that angel investor who was our neighbor here in North Bondi said, okay, what do you need? When do you need it? Who do I need to send it to? And so he, he got us out of jail. It was unbelievable. So from tragedy to miracle, but in terms of a mistake, yeah, chickens hatched, you know the deal. <laughs> yes, for sure. Oh, that's an amazing story. I Mine is pretty painful. I, I, I'm a big fan of hiring smart. Mm. I think I think hiring smart is a really big thing. And what I mean by that is thinking really carefully. Again, think about your structure. Think about the processes. Where does the job fit in the processes? And then figure out what the company's competencies for the job are. 
and then work that whole thing up and then get behavior-based interview questions that are aligned with that, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty confident about this and I've had a pretty good run, but I have made some terrible hires. And, and mm -hmm. I will tell you, there's one in particular that, and I, this is something I'll just throw out to the listeners. If anybody has any insight in this, you know, send us a note. But I, it, it occurred to me after the whole disaster of us hiring this person who seemed like they were going to really fit in great. And then they were just, they were a terrible fit. It was because there was a mental health part of this. Right. They, they were, they were, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any way of screening yeah. for this person's probably got something in the DSM five, right. That's diagnosable. Yeah. They're, they're not fit for work. They can't work with people. They seem fine most of the time, but if you go into a bad spot with them, they lose their mind. They get, this guy had massive anger issues and he couldn't take feedback and, oh man, was that a, a disaster I had to clean up. I mean, it was months and months of pain for one terrible move. So got to own that one. Yeah, that it is brutal. It really made me think. It's funny how, you know, over the years I've met you, I've known you, like the gig economy has gotten bigger. So there's this trend to say, mm. well, maybe we don't have a full-time employee with all the, you know, you've got a big screening process and there's benefits. And then, you know, in socialist countries like Australia, you know, firing someone's a fairly big process. It's three written warnings. It's whatever I know right. in America at will so the trend of gig economy gives you a little get out of jail card if it's like well i'll just hire a contractor like mm -hmm. it sort of lowers the bar a bit but i mean it is the most important thing a business owner can do is hire people and how you do it how you hire how you fire how you have fierce conversations is crucial and i don't know that they teach that anywhere in yeah. NBA the, it's it's a bigger thing now than it used to be because i think people realize that even people with the skill often don't have the motivation and even though some people are basically paid to do that they don't do it anyway that's the thing that i see is people just avoid the the conflict so often i i think seeking harmony over conflict in work situations can be very dangerous sometimes I, you've really got to pick your battles in that regard you can make a terrible mistake so true you can paper over stuff and then you do do a mishire and that sends a signal to the culture because if that mishire resets the standard and it's a lower standard than yours then everyone feeds oh. off that standard not yours and it's brutal yeah it's brutal okay so hey i'm going to give you an excuse to brag here Tell, tell me about something real smart you've done. Um, I think the smartest thing we did was we hired a chief culture officer, the first first person we hired. And I remember Kim, my wife, who's my co-founder, was like, I'm sorry, what what are we doing? We're not going to hire a marketer. <laughs> We're or spending a, money on what? Guy. Right. And so I went for a hike in the woods uh, behind uh, Portland one day at, uh, oh gosh, what's the name of the forest? Sorry. Well, the, um, the, 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 just the, the really Portland? big one? Yeah. <laughs> You mean the yeah. largest? Yeah. You mean the yeah. largest forest inside a city in the whole country? <laughs> Sorry. Forest park. Forest, forest park. park. Forest I went park. walking with a guy called David Sawyer, and at the end of it, I said, "I want to hire this guy." And he was actually a contractor, but he he and I sat and co-developed the the entire you know the whole blueprint of how to hire, how to fire, what the what the manual is that everyone gets, how do we communicate culture? And he would come in every week with a great quote from a Peter Drucker or a Lee, Lee Hawk or someone. And um, we'd have these great sessions building the culture as we went and dealing with chaos. I mean, when the investor died, how did Kim and I deal with that? And again, for us, it's multidimensional because the, the founders are married, right? Yeah. So that's tricky. And for a culture, yeah. it's tricky, right? So we're co-founders. Okay, so where does the D actually lie? Is it with me or is it with Kim? Um, mm -hmm. So it's complicated. And for many, many years, we had on-site childcare. So then you got a situation. 
employees' kids are in our care, okay, on the one hand, and then they're employed by the company on the other hand. Well, what if you're an employee and you're not happy with this, the quality of the service of the childcare? Did you come to me? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So I think that was yeah. you know, one of the biggest things, yeah. So um, For sure, for sure. So, so, yeah. So that I think hiring that chief culture officer was a big help for me. I, it was not on my radar when we started the company. We were focused on the product and how to get customers. And then it was like, oh, we're going to need to hire people. How do you hire people? So, yeah. Yeah. How about you? So, you know, well, okay, I'm not going to let you get out of this. With, with This is just a little too humble. You you brought to market a, a compostable diaper, man. We we started a new, <laughs> How are you? yeah. We've not, we've not covered this. I mean, anybody who goes to your website will learn about this. But, I mean, I just can't, I'm so impressed with the original product in the first place because I, I don't know if it was the first of its kind or anything, but certainly it was a really big deal because of the fact that so much of the, I don't know, you can tell me what, how much of the landfill was diapers. It's crazy, yeah, right? It's the, it's the biggest single use contributor to landfill. And when we started in 2005, so the origin is Finn, who's now 18, when he was born, we read a statistic that one disposable diaper takes 500 years to buy a grade and there's a cup of oil in every diaper. Now, when we launched, we, we, we saw this as a vehicle to make meaning and money in our lives. Here's a business that makes meaning and makes money. And yeah, when we started our first VP of marketing, who was amazing and awesome, we were playing around with different sort of angles. And we said, what about plastic free? And she's just like, no one cares about plastic. What are you talking about? And it was 2005. Mm-hmm. She was absolutely correct. And we reflect on it now going, look how far the world has cha- moved. You've yeah, got interesting. David Attenborough yeah. coming out two years ago saying we are drowning in plastic waste. We've got a waste directive from the European Union that's attacking waste, uh, plastic waste. Plastic's the enemy. Plastics, it's, it's, anyway, we feel like one lesson we've learned is if you're in business long enough, your timing will be right. <laughs> we were about yeah. like 15 years too early. But yeah, yeah. We, we launched a new category of diaper in America called the hybrid diaper. So you've got cloth diapers that are all washable, reusable. You've got disposable diapers that just go in landfill. Ours was a hybrid. So it's an outer pant that's reusable, washable, fashionable, and an insert. You can home compost the wet ones only. Or you can commercially compost them. So it's a hybrid between two. Um, so yeah, so no, we're really proud of that. And even despite the pandemic and all the rest of it, yeah. you know, we're here and we're solving problems. You know, the city of Paris, for example, we're working with the country of um, Vanuatu, the country of Tuvalu. These island nations are drowning in plastic. Indonesia, more babies in Indonesia than the US. Twenty percent of their marine plastic waste is baby diapers. They have no, they have no waste infrastructure. And so the challenge with developing countries is they have no landfill but they have a massive growing middle class that want the convenience of Australia and America and Europe. Mm-hmm. So they want the plastic stuff. And we're trying to get in there quickly and jumpstart this kind of revolution to something. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's no, that's, and, and very cool too. I, I Very uh, in awe of a lot of the work that you've done over the years. It's just great stuff. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'll say as far as our piece, I'll use a Songus example, something more recent because it's, it's fun. These are all things that, that I'm doing as a part of a team, right? So I'm not taking any sort of individual credit for this. But we've got this, you know, we do things like focus groups and mock trials mm-hmm. to help lawyers get some sense of how well their message is coming across in advance of going to trial. And one of the things we started realizing probably about two years ago was that paper was dying. It's just paper is not getting used. 
to the extent that it used to. Everything's being done on, a, you know, on PDFs and things like that. So we thought, what if we, you know, normally in one of these focus groups or mock trials, we've got these questionnaires, paper questionnaires all over the place. And certainly uh, we weren't thinking about COVID at the time when we started this project, but it turns out that we kind of got inadvertently lucky mm, because most of the research we've been doing lately is, is virtual, right? It's everybody's on Zoom, basically. And what people can do is they can take a picture of a little code and they can fill out an online questionnaire and the data of that goes directly to us. And instead of being just this ugly looking Excel spreadsheet of data, it basically represents itself graphically in a very easy to consume way for attorneys, for for us, for the client. And they can look at it in this easy to sort format. And if they interact with it on a tablet, they can, with their finger, move around and cut the data all these different ways that they want to throughout the day. And it's just super cool because you're not waiting for us to go back and crunch all the reports and, and then give you a report afterwards. You're like mm. That day you can get automatic instant knowledge and leave that day with some decent sense of what's going on and not have to wait two weeks for a, a report. So anyway, this, this new interactive data dashboard that we've got is, I just think, super cool. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback on it, and I'm really excited about it the possibilities as we develop it so that's so cool and i love what you do i think it's such a fascinating business because because we have the barrister system here a different system the it's just brilliant what you do i think it's so clever oh thanks jason well what do you got going on this next week 20 shopping days to christmas so we're gonna get ready for that now obviously we are in the heat of summer here so our christmases are warm kind of fun we've got end of school also our terms are different right so school the academic year matches the calendar year. So this is the last week of school for the kids. There's like a prize giving. So my oldest son's going to have his last assembly and we'll get a prize for something. And then we go off to like six weeks of summer holidays. So uh, oh, you we're going to stay it, right? local. You it's good. It, right? you, you were down here. You were down here. And uh, I love the photos of our families together. A couple yeah. of years back. It was, no, it was so good. I miss those days. We're, I'm looking forward to doing that again. Well, we're, we're going long again. So I'm going to wrap it for this week. And hey, everybody, thanks again for being a part of this. This. We'll have something great for you next week. Catch you soon. Thanks so much, guys. See you. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time.